0: In our series, Romans, a first century faith for the 21st century, uh, today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11, verse 1 through 36. The title of today's message is Saved for God's Glory, the Remnant of Israel, and the Gentile Church. Saved for God's Glory, the Remnant of Israel and the Gentile church. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, Romans chapter 11. And I was having a conversation with someone this week, and they were asking me, um, you know, why why do we need to focus so much on Israel? Why does Paul focus on Israel in Romans? Can we just talk about us, the Gentile church, us as believers? And and I think it's important for us to be reminded that uh, we look at Israel because um, Israel is the dominant people throughout the Old Testament. Israel was God's chosen people. They had been given the law, the, uh, the covenants, the Abraham, Moses, and Davidic covenants. They had been given the forefathers. And they're the central people throughout the Old Testament. And the disciples, the church, um, Jesus himself came out of Israel. And so they're really the central kind of people uh, and the church, the people in which the church came out of primarily in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. So it's important for us to understand that um, Israel is a central focus. And as we look at Israel, we want to be looking at a couple of things, remembering a couple of things. Um, number one is, when you compare Israel to the other pagan nations uh, in the Old and New Testament, when you compare Israel to uh, uh, Babylon and to Egypt, and to Persia, and to uh, Greece, the Greeks, and to the Romans. Israel and the Hebrew nation is really unique in the sense that um, all of these other nations did not have a a true concept for uh, the divine being or their divine gods wanting a loving relationship with human beings. The Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, their gods did not want a relationship with human beings that was based on love, that was based on righteousness. Their religions did not give one central text like we have in the Word of God. And, um, and there was no Savior for them. And that makes the Bible unique. That makes the religion of Israel and later on the church unique. Unique. And the other aspect, aside from a loving relationship and righteousness and a sacred text and just the belief in one single God, as opposed to all these other gods and all these other religions, another thing that made Israel unique is that God had revealed to them a destiny. He had revealed to them that this is the future, this is going to be the the culmination of things in the universe, in human history, and I am going to be doing this through you and through later on the church, but this is where history is headed. This is where the destiny of human beings is headed, and that is really unique uh, in, in the Old and New Testament compared to the other pagan religions around them. Um, and so today in, a, in our sermon, in Romans chapter 11, we're going to really focus on two things. Number one, we're going to look at how Israel was a remnant. God preserves a remnant of believing Israel. God, a remnant is simply a small group that's chosen and that's kept. That God preserved a believing remnant in Israel. And in the future, Israel will eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ and come back to God through that. At some point in the future, they're a remnant. In the future, they'll come back to faith. And secondly, we're going to look at how um, in the meantime, as Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, God has brought us as the believing church, the Gentile church, to faith through his choosing us his mercy and for his glory. And so we're going to look focus on those two points, Israel as remnant, coming to faith in the future, and in the meantime, God bringing us as the church into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so with that, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. And as you're turning there, we want to be reminded that as we look at God's dealing with Israel, that it's telling us something about God's faithfulness and how he deals with people. Even when they wander away, God has a way of, of wanting them to come back to him. And so Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at the entire chapter. I want to encourage you to to open up your Bible or look at your app. And um, just as an aside, I really encourage you. And and this might is going to make me sound old. In this, I understand that, but there's a reason for that. Maybe all old people kind of say that, and they think it's just the way to go. And young people say, "No, you say this because you're old." Is I really like the idea of people looking at the scriptures um, using a physical Bible. And I know it's, sometimes it's not as convenient, you got to switch around, but what having a physical Bible does, as, and apps are fine, I know I'm not putting that down right here, but what it does is it forces you to look around at where things are in the actual Bible, as opposed to just looking it up. And so, maybe I'm old school, but I actually like that. I think it's uh, really incredibly beneficial at times. Romans chapter 11, we're going to read all... 36 verses. And so let's go ahead and stand now for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 11. Paul is concluding this three-chapter section of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where he's talking about how God has chosen us, He has redeemed us, God gets to choose who He wants to choose to bring to Himself, that faith comes through hearing and hearing from the Word of God, that anyone who yields their heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and believes He's been raised from the dead will be saved. And now in chapter 11, we're going to look at how God has uh, preserved Israel and brought the church to Himself in the meantime. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Please follow along. Paul writes this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Verse 11. So I asked, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am And apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. For if their rejection uh, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you, are, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Yes. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity through toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from What is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to them, they also may now receive mercy. Verse 32. For God had consigned to all disobedience that they may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, as we just touch the surface of these great truths today, uh, we confess that your ways are higher. Your judgments are beyond reproach. And we do not come to this time with arrogance, knowing that uh, we are better than Israel, and so we have come to faith. On the contrary, we come to this time in humility, um, in gratitude for the grace and mercy you've given to us, choosing us, electing us, bringing us to yourself in salvation, Lord. And we pray for unbelieving Israel, for the day that they may... Um, come to you, Father, to repent, to recognize, and to bend their knee, to confess with their mouth that your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And um, we pray that the fullness of the Gentiles, perhaps even some here who have not yet given their faith, their lives to Jesus Christ, Lord, that, um, that our church may play a role in that, in the fulfillment of um, your future for the salvation of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You Have a seat. Thank you. So today we're going to highlight some core teachings from Romans chapter 11. There is so much depth here, so much eschatology, um, so much uh, about the um, the nature and the future of Israel here. We are not going to be able to go in depth into most of that, but I did want to approach Romans chapter 11 Uh Teaching it as simply and as straightforward as I can. Touching upon the main points that I think you need to, to know. And then, of course, I encourage you to research that uh, some more beyond this. So let's go to the first point. The remnant of Israel. The remnant of Israel. Paul's reminding us that God has preserved, he has kept a remnant of Israel in verse 1 and verse 5 through 6. I'm just going to highlight that briefly. Um, Verse 1, Paul says, I ask then as God, has God rejected his people? Paul is the I. He's asking, has God rejected his people, his people not being the church, but Israel? He says, by no means, verse 1, And then he goes on to verse 5 and 6 and he he says at the present time there's a remnant, a a small group of believing Israelites who believe in the the Lord Jesus Christ. And that verse 5, they are chosen by God, by grace, His grace. Verse 6, and it is by His grace, not their works, not their own word, inherent worthiness, Otherwise, grace would not no longer be grace. Now, Paul here in verse 1 through 6, he is saying God has not rejected his people as a total. He has not rejected Israel uh, forever. And in verse 2 through 4, he gives an example. He says, I myself, I'm an Israelite. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, verse 2, um, uh, verse 1, rather, And verse 2, he says, God, and so he's saying, I'm an Israelite and I came to faith. So God cannot have rejected his people completely. For I, Paul, am an Israelite who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 2, God cannot reject those whom he foreknew. Now, again, when we talked about the other week, God chooses people not by saying, I'm just going to see, because I'm God and I'm above time, I'm going to see into the future about who will choose me. I have foreknowledge of who will choose me. Therefore, I as God will go back and then choose them based upon the fact that they chose me. That's not foreknowledge that Paul's talking about. He's saying that God simply chose people and he knew those that he was going to choose. And then he goes on to say, he gives an example from First Kings chapter eighteen and Chapter Nineteen, where, as you remember, the prophet Elijah uh, he went into battle against the prophets of Baal there 's a huge showdown, hundreds of them, and God sent fire down to consume them and uh, He used Elijah to prove that God, not Baal, is God and It says that um, Elijah at that point, he runs a couple of marathons he runs in, he goes into a deep depression. And at one point, he turns to God and he says, God, I just want to die. I'm like the only one left. There's so much apostasy in the land. I'm like the only true believer. I'm the only one. I alone. And God comes back to him in 1 Kings chapter 19, and he goes, No, no, you're not. You think you are, Elijah. But I, God, have actually 7,000 other true believers, true worshipers that you don't know anything about. I do because I'm God. And I have 7,000 others that have not bent their knee to Baal. And what that was illustrating that Paul's using here in Romans 11, he's saying that Elijah thought he was the only one, but actually God always preserves a remnant of people. You can see this consistently throughout the Old Testament. Um, When God's people were released from the hand of Pharaoh, they went into the Exodus They wandered through the wilderness for those 40 years. I don't know if it was like a million of them or so. After 40 years, most of them died in the wilderness. The only ones that really, that got to come into the promised land were who? Their children. God preserved this remnant through the wilderness. To go into the Promised Land, and they were the ones that went in. Elijah is another example of the remnant, the seven thousand that did not bend the knee to Baal. Uh, when God's people were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 or so BC, and then again in uh, 586 around there BC uh, by the Babylonians, and they were uh, Jerusalem was was destroyed, leveled to the ground, and then they were taken um, east. To Babylon, which is modern day Iraq, and they spent 70 years there. And then after that point, they got to come back to Jerusalem to repatriate the land. Uh, most of the people that ended up going from Jerusalem into Babylon either died in Babylon over those seven years, or when it was time for them to come back to repatriate Jerusalem, most of them actually stayed in Babylon because they were just so used to it. And I think it was only about maybe fifty or 60,000 of them came back to Jerusalem at that point. But there was a remnant that came back. In fact, in, um, in the New Testament, when uh, Jesus chooses the disciples and people come to faith in the Gospels, There's only a small remnant that came to faith while Jesus had his ministry here among the Jewish nation. We know the disciples and others as well. And then when the church was birthed in the book of Acts and all the way through the epistles, through the first century, most of Israel rejected Jesus. But of those uh, that came to faith in the church, the majority of the church in the first century was actually Jewish. Yes, it was Jew. Yes, it was believing Gentile. But although most of Israel rejected Jesus in the New Testament, of the church that did become the church, the majority of the church in the first hundred years or so was actually came from a Jewish background. And so there was a remnant of believers even back then. And so it says in verse 5 that... There's a remnant that was chosen or chosen by God by grace. We are chosen by God to come to faith. God gets to choose, we don't. That is actually what Paul taught in Romans chapter 9. If you go back a couple weeks, we looked at this. In Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about um, in verse 6 and following how he gives he gives two examples. He says uh, when Isaac and Rebekah uh, came together in marriage, and then Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau, two twin sons. You know the story from the book of Genesis. Re- Re- when Rebekah gave birth to um, Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob. He rejected Esau. And he basically said, I, and he says in Romans 9, God said, I have loved Jacob, I have hated Esau. This is just when they were born, right? They didn't do technically anything wrong. There's babies, but God sovereignly chose. And he chose Jacob to continue on the godly line. Esau would uh, continue the pagan line of, of, of pagan people that would come from his lineage. He gives a second example from Romans 9. And he says um, that in Pharaoh and Moses, God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. And Moses and God's people got to go free. And so there's this sense that people were chosen. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Moses and God's people were chosen over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And why? We're simply given the reason in Romans 9 that God gets to choose who he has compassion and mercy on and who he doesn't. And then as if to anticipate our question, well, that's not fair, God. Paul says in Romans 9, well, God simply says back to us, I am the potter, you are the clay. Does the thing that is made by the potter get to turn to the potter itself and say, well, why did you make me this way? No, the potter gets to choose, and that's not question. And that's actually very good news. It's very good news that God is ultimately the one who chooses us for himself. That God is the one who chooses who is saved and who is passed over. The other option, other than God, is what? Is who? It's us. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you trust God more in making the right judgment, in making the right choices of who should come to him, would you rather trust God or would you rather trust people? I don't want to trust, in the end, my own heart. That my heart is going to make the right choice to choose the right religion, to choose the right God, and to come to faith... And secondly, I don't want to trust, nor should you, other human beings ultimately say, well, yeah, my salvation re- relies on if another fallen human being is willing to share their faith with me and choose to do that. See, I'd rather say, no, I'm not going to trust my own heart. I'm not going to trust God or I trust other people. I'm going to trust God. God is far more trustworthy. And this is what Romans 9 and 11 are teaching. And he says in verse 6, He says, "It is by grace, not by works. It is by grace that the remnant has been chosen." In fact, Paul said this again in Romans chapter nine, verse thirty through thirty-three. In Romans nine, verse thirty and following, Paul says the Gentiles they didn't have, they didn't try and live a righteous law, a righteous life. The Gentiles, the the non-Jewish people did not try and live a righteous life, but they found God because they had faith. God's people in Israel, he says, had the law, and they tried to live according to God's righteous law, but they didn't find righteousness. Why? Because they didn't have faith. Faith in Jesus Christ was the difference between who God considered righteous And who he didn't. Not who had the law and tried to obey it on their own. And so in this first part, we are reminded in Romans chapter 11 that there is a remnant of Israel that God has preserved, that he has chosen, that he has given his grace to and upholds with his grace. Number two, the church is brought into God's kingdom. The church is brought into God's kingdom. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 17. In verse 17, just one verse here. Paul says this, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant, uh, etc. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. But in verse 17, he says, There are some branches that were broken off and a wild olive shoot was grafted in and now shares of the nourishing root of the olive tree in Palestine. There's all these olive trees. And olive trees would live often for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they would produce the fruit of olives. And over time, as you can imagine, Uh, over hundreds of years, that olive tree that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years, the fruit would become a little bit more barren over time. That makes sense as it gets older. And so a common practice in first century Palestine was with older olive trees, they would look at dead branches. They would cut the dead branch off the olive tree. They would take a branch from a younger olive tree and they would have a way to graft it into the Existing olive tree, the younger branch, and it would be grafted into the tree, and that would then produce fruit for a long period of time. And that's why these olive trees could produce fruit for hundreds and hundreds of years. Old branches were cut off that were unfruitful. New branches that could be fruitful were grafted in. Everyone who was reading this would have understand that agricultural process. And so when Jesus, or when Paul says this, he talks about, uh, He talks about branches. He talks about the root of the olive tree. And he talks about branches broken off, wild olive shoot. The olive tree is God. The branches that are broken off is Israel. And the wild offshoot that's grafted in to the olive tree is the church. In fact, uh, Jesus illustrated this in the Gospels. Remember in Matthew chapter 21 he told the parable of the tenants, Jesus, in Matthew 21. And uh, he told this parable where he said, there was a certain master who owned a vineyard, and that master had some tenants come in and take care of his, his vineyard. The master then left the vineyard in char- with the tenants in charge, and the master left on a trip. After a period of time, Jesus talks about this parable. He says, the master said, I, I'm going to send some servants back to the vineyard to check in on the tenants and to look at, at, at the, the, the vineyard. And when the servants that the master sent back to the tenants, uh, when the tenants saw these servants, they said, you know what? Uh, these are the servants of the master. He's not here. Let's just kill them. And so they killed the servants. And the master kept sending servants, they got killed. Finally, the master turns and he goes, you know, I'm going to send those tenants my son. And when they see my son, they will respect him. The master's son went back, you can guess what happened, you know the parable, the tenants saw the son and they killed the son. And... Um, the master was angry with those tenants and eventually punished them as you can imagine. Jesus told this parable to illustrate what has happened in Israel's unbelief. God is the master of the vineyard and he the tenants are Israel. And when God sent His servants, the prophets in the Old Testament, back to the tenants, Israel. They killed the prophets. They rejected the servants, the prophets. And then finally, the the landowner, the master, sends his son to the tenants, which is Jesus Christ, gets sent to Israel. And what happens? They kill Jesus Christ. So the parable is also to illustrate the master's anger at those who have killed his son. It says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, in the same, in the same uh, parable of the tenants, the conclusion was this. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that you is Israel, and given to a people producing its fruit. And that people is you and I. It is the non-Jewish Church, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there are some Jews today who believe in Jesus Christ, but overall, Israel to this day has rejected Jesus Christ. And so, in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, I tell you, the kingdom of God has been taken away from Israel for their rejection of Jesus Christ and given to a people producing its fruit. That is the church. That is you and I. Producing the fruit is what? The fruit is our belief in Jesus Christ. The fruit is what? That we are willing to share our faith and lead other people and make disciples of Jesus Christ. The church has been brought into God's kingdom. And um, we've been brought here by faith. If you're here today and you have never made a commitment of faith in Jesus Christ... The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if anyone would confess with their mouth, homo speak the same thing about Jesus as the Father says about Jesus. If anyone would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that He is risen from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean to confess Jesus is Lord? It means that you have come to the... It's not just words you say. It's not some kind of mantra, like Eastern mystic mantra. I say the words and therefore it's... Now, what, it what it's saying is, if you are willing to say, I choose Jesus above all others and trust in him for my salvation. I, I have faith and I yield to Jesus. I confess with my mouth and I bend my knee to Jesus as Lord. Money's not my Lord anymore. This other person is not my Lord anymore. Satan is not my Lord. I am not my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Are you willing to do that? So, the Bible says, if you will do that, and if you believe in Romans 10, again, it says, if you believe in your heart that he has been raised from the dead. I had someone come up to me at the downtown LA service today, and they were saying, you know what? I've been talking with some people, and uh, I just kind of assumed that, you know, people knew. The importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were like, um, I I realize that not everyone understands the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though many people have been going to church for many years. I said, That's right. Because the resurrection is important. Why? It's because when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he died for our sins, He, he took the punishment for our sins, and he died physically. He took the punishment and wrath and judgment of God on the cross for our sins, and then he physically died. But he rose again three days later, and his resurrection is important. Why? Number one, it's because he defeated death in his resurrection. And death is the ultimate problem that you and I have, along with human evil. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death. And what that means is he's alive today. Buddha is not alive today. Muhammad is not alive today. Jesus Christ is alive today. And in his resurrection, what we are saying is, I believe he conquered death by rising from the dead as God raised him from the dead. And secondly, he's alive today. And thirdly, if I believe in him, his life, his resurrected spirit, Holy Spirit, will come through the Holy Spirit, come to live inside of me And I, too, will be resurrected from my spiritual death. That is why the resurrection matters, aside from the fact the Bible prophesied it. It's very important. We need to place our faith in Jesus Christ. The two biggest, most unsolvable dilemmas human beings have ever faced in human history has been what? Number one, the problem of human evil or sin. And number two, the problem of death. Those are the two biggest problems human beings have ever faced. Nobody has been able to come up with a solution other than Jesus. And that is why he is Lord. That is why his resurrection matters. The Bible says in Romans 10, if you believe in your heart that he has been raised from the dead, you will be justified before God. You will be declared righteous before God. And if you confess with your mouth, He is Lord, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Have you done that today? Have you come to the place where you said, I'm ready. I'm ready to confess Jesus as Lord. I want to follow Him as Lord. I'm unashamed to say that. And he is my Lord. I don't want to be with God and God's people in all of heaven. I don't want to burn in hell. And I believe in my heart he has risen from the dead to give me spiritual life. And so I can know God. Have you done that? If you have not, the Bible says you are not saved. The Bible says you are headed for an eternity in the outer darkness. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth of of eternal regret and the flames of hell. You can't sugarcoat this stuff. And that is nothing less than the ultimate, most important consideration for you. Next, in this passage, Israel will come to faith in the future. The first point we talked about, is there will be a remnant of Israel that is preserved. Secondly, the church is brought into God's kingdom. But thirdly, Israel in the future will come to faith. Israel will come to faith at some point in the future. In Romans chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, um, actually, um, we're going to, verse 12, 24 and 25. In verse 12, Paul says this, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure, that's there, that pronoun there is Israel, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, Israel's failure to, um, believe in Christ means riches for the Gentiles, because we got to be grafted in, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more, that's the full inclusion of Israel. That means that in the future, Israel will be re-embraced. It will be included. Verse 12, verse 24, how much more will these, the natural branches, that's Israel, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, that's in their unbelief, broken off branch and all, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's one of the reasons why we share the Great Commission and follow that and make disciples is because God is waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to become to belief before Israel is brought back to God And verse 26, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Verse 12, verse 24, verse 25, and 26. Israel, in the future, will come back to faith in the Lord. They will come back, they will come to faith. And... To so take a step back to understand what was the original plan here? What's, what's the original design of how this all worked together? Yes, Israel is living on a belief. We can all see that in Jesus Christ right now. Yes, they're gonna come back, they're gonna come back to God through and they're gonna acknowledge Jesus Christ and follow him. But what is God's overall master plan of how that all fits together? If you go back to the beginning, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 17. The call of Abram, or later on, Abraham. And Abraham was, is the forefather of Israel. And in Genesis 12, 15, 17, um, God promised Abraham. He said, Abraham, I, God, I'm going to come to you. I have chosen you. I'm just going to announce myself to you. And I, God, Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to to strike a covenant between me and you and your descendants. Number one, I'm going to give you land, this promised land, that I've chosen for you and your people. I am going to give you descendants, like, like, like sand on the seashore. There's going to be a multitude of descendants through you, even though you're an old man. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And also, it says in Genesis 12, that through you or your descendants will all the nations be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The plan originally, you guys, was not, follow me on this, it was not that God was going to choose this people, Abraham and his descendants, which became Israel, and say, only you and you alone will be the ones that are saved. No one else is going to be saved. It's just you, and that's it. That was not the plan. The plan was God was going to come to a people that would become Israel. See, I'm going to choose you. You're going to be set aside. I'm going to give you the laws, the, the forefathers, um, the, the, the covenants, and the, all the traditions, all of this. I'm going to give this to you because you are my chosen people. You are my beloved people. But it's not just going to be for you. I'm going to use you, Israel, to be a light to the nations. That was always the plan. Israel was b- both chosen by God on one hand, but secondly, they were to be his ambassadors to the world. In fact, you see this in passages like Isaiah verse forty, chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, verse (coughs) 5, verse 5 through 7. Notice how God is calling Israel, talking about the future and reaffirming that Israel is not just to be God's chosen people, but they had a role as ambassadors to the world to share about God. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it verse 6 I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you that's God choosing Israel I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons of those who sit in darkness. Israel was not just chosen. They had an ambassador, uh, a, a, a role of an ambassador to the nations. And yet what happened? What happened? When the Messiah came to Israel... Israel rejected Jesus in the Gospels. And when they rejected him, they literally said, We're going to cut ourselves off from God. And that's what they did when they rejected Jesus. They cut themselves off from God. And secondly, God temporarily cut off Israel from himself. That's why it says that the gospel went to the Gentiles. And At that point when Israel rejected God through Jesus Christ, God said, all right, um, I'm going to bring the Gentiles to the center stage and the Gentile church is going to be the ones who will now share the message of salvation. That was supposed to be for you, Israel. You blew it. And so now it will come to the Gentiles, which is us, and we are the ones now, who have the privilege of sharing Jesus Christ with an unbelieving world. But, 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 Israel in the future will come to faith. Israel will come to faith. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful to the covenants that he made to Israel. God is faithful to the promises of Scripture And God is faithful to his chosen people. Now, it doesn't mean that in the future all of Israel will come to faith. Like everyone who's a non-believing Jew today will come to faith. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that in large masses, there will be a significant number of people from Israel who in the future will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, there are some uh, Jews today that know Jesus Christ, but it's talking about a wider scale. In Zechariah, Zechariah, Old Testament prophet, Zechariah was a prophet, a minor prophet, and uh, he ministered in a time where after um, God's people were in captivity in Babylon for seven years, and then they came back to Jerusalem, uh, prophets like Zechariah, Haggai before Zechariah, Malachi as well, and and, uh, perhaps Joel. These prophets ministered in the time of Israel when they came back to rebuild Jerusalem. In Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, I'll summarize it, you can read it later. In Zechariah chapter 12 through 14, Zechariah is ministering in a time when Israel came back to rebuild Jerusalem. The temple after their Babylonian captivity in Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. He's making a prophecy about the future of Israel. And to sum up, God says through Zechariah, through those chapters, that Israel in the future will receive the Messiah. The Spirit of God is being be poured out upon them. They're going to look at the one who has been pierced, Jesus, and embrace him as Messiah. Their sins will be forgiven. They will acknowledge him as king and worship him on the earth. In fact, that's what the Bible says that in the future, Israel will, will worship the Lord in the millennial kingdom, in the future, when Jesus returns. In fact, it says in Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14, and chapter 13, it talks about a time in the end times. And uh, when people who are in living in unbelief will be living in complete chaos in this world. And what's going to happen is that the Antichrist will take control of the world. And the beast, the Antichrist, will force everyone, and along with the false prophet, to, they can't buy, they can't sell goods, Revelation chapter 13, unless they receive the mark of the beast on their forehead on their right hand and they can't buy or sell without that and in Revelation chapter 7 and 14 uh, John contrasts that mark of the beast that unbelievers receive and if you receive that you're damned you know, you better off just killing yourself and confessing to Jesus Christ and receiving the mark of the beast but in Revelation chapter 7 14 it's contrasted with the mark of God the seal of God And the seal of the Lamb, it says that there will be those, Israel, who receive the seal of God on their forehead and the seal of the Lamb on their forehead. And 144,000 of them who come to faith and who survive the Great Tribulation and who turn into God's evangelists, Israel evangelizing the world around them, sharing about Jesus Christ as now believing Jews. And so in the future, Israel will come to faith. When that is, we don't know. I'm fallen. I'm limited in my capacity to know these things. I really don't. But if I had to take a guess, this is a complete guess. And so many people before me have guessed and got it completely wrong. I might as well add my name into the hat. Um, and those of you that outlive me, you can, you know, point this out to me in heaven. Um I think now that it's entirely possible Jesus could return. This is just my opinion. This is not prophecy um, within our lifetimes. And I say that for two reasons, and this is just my opinion. Number one is Israel has been established as a nation as of 1948. And now with their establishment as a nation and their recognition as a people, not a scattered people throughout the world, but actually a nation, it makes a lot of these prophecies possible because they're now recognized as a nation again, and number two, we now have the technology for the mark of the beast to happen. I mean, we can go into all these conversations about what's real or what you might think is conspiracy theory or not, but I can completely see that happening in the, if not my life or the life of my children, and that's important, you guys. Because when you talk about biblical prophecy, when you look in passages like Second Peter chapter three, um, like First John chapter Chapter 3, and other places, when the Bible talks about prophecy, it talks about you know these things um, kind of culminating in judgment. There is a call to personal holiness along with the teaching of end times prophecy. And part of the role of why we as a church need to be reminded that Jesus is returning, that the end is coming, that this world is not our permanent home, and that we need to be right with the Lord today is because we need to be reminded that this is a temporary place. It's a temporary, temporary state for us. Our true home is our citizenship in heaven. And, um, and that should remind us to live holy lives now. Because we don't, we don't have all the time in the world, do we? You know that. You could die tomorrow. You know that. But Jesus could return as well. And part of the mark of a mature Christian is this. Who lives a life of urgency and holiness now. Partly because he or she knows and is reminded in a sober-minded way that the Master is going to return at a time that we don't expect or can't predict. And so every time I read about biblical prophecy and I think about the future, yeah, Jesus is returning, and there's going to be judgment on this earth, it actually moves me to holiness in the present. I need that. And so do you. And that's why the Bible talks about that. We don't have all the time in the world. we got to get right with the Lord today. And so finally for this afternoon, God's mercy, His higher ways and judgments, and His glory. God's mercy, His higher ways, His judgments, and His glory. Romans chapter 11, verse 32, through 36. After talking uh, earlier on in the chapter that we, the Gentile church, we are not to be arrogant in being chosen by God and Israel, why are they so dumb? Why don't they get it? Um, that we are to pray for Israel. We should have a heart for Israel. We are to be reminded that um, we were not chosen because of our works, but by gro- God's grace alone. And... Um, Paul ends this passage, of this chapter, and he says, verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience. This word consigned comes from the Greek word soklio. Socleo. See that word consigned in the ESV? God has consigned. Soklio. Soklio means to enclose, to shut in says, God has enclosed, he has shut in. Socleo, he has consigned all to disobedience. What does that mean? It means God is going to hold us accountable for our disobedience. He has held us in this world in such a way to where we have a sin nature. We are naturally sinners. And so God is going to hold us responsible for that. He's going to shut us in so we can't escape on our own the penalty and punishment for our own disobedience. He's consigned us to that. He's trapped us in the consequences of our disobedience. Why? Verse 32, that he may have mercy on us. That he may have mercy on us. That's the great God that we have. God is merciful. And God gives mercy in fact, when Jeremiah was looking out at the demolished Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, he said, God's mercies are new every morning. You and I are here by God's mercy. God gives to you mercy every day in ways probably we don't even realize. God is always ready to give mercy to those who turn to him. And he says... In verse 33 through verse, verse 35. That the depth of his riches, his wisdom, and the knowledge of God, that his judgments are unsearchable. And his ways are inscrutable. His judgments are higher than ours. His ways cannot be condemned, cannot be critiqued. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 55, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, God saying through Isaiah, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, verse 33. God's judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. Verse 34 and 35. No one has known the mind of the Lord. No one's been his counselor. And uh, he doesn't need to repay anyone because they've given, who's been such a gift to God. Why? Because God's ways and his judgments are higher than you and I. And we would not want it any other way. You don't. You don't want a religion or God that you look at and say, oh, I've got him completely figured out. Yeah, I, I know exactly why, you know, um, there's evil and there's suffering. I know why this person suffered and this person didn't. I know why he chose this person and passed over this person. I, have com- I've got, I can completely figure out the Trinity. I can completely figure out that tension between being chosen, predestined, and elected, and drawn by God versus man's choice. Oh, it's completely, I have it down like a math formula and a, and, and a solution. You don't want that, what you? because God, you're not God, and I, I'm not either. We have this finite P on mine compared to God. His ways are so far higher. One of the ways that you can know that Christianity is true is that if you look at it and say, okay, I get it, I, I get what it's saying, but there's this element of mystery and something that's beyond me that, I just have to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And that, that is actually, to me, an indication it's true. Because a religion that you have completely figured out, just do these steps, you got it. No, that cannot be true. A religion where you have no guidance to where you can understand it, like Taoism or something like that, they're speaking nonsense. No, that can't be true. Christianity makes complete logical sense. There is a sense that God has shown us enough to know who he is, the way to salvation, how, how he expects us to live, where we are headed, and the meaning of life, the origin of life. We have these answers in the Bible. But why God does certain things and choosing certain people, who to have mercy on and who, not, who do, he doesn't have mercy on, Romans 9, well, we just have to trust God on that. And um, any parent who has children understands that dynamic. Every parent has turned to their child at some point and said, and their child starts at what, age two? Why? Why? Tell me why. Why is this? Why is that? And you're seeing there as a parent, and you know, beginning parents are trying to answer every single question. Well, it's this, 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 this. And finally a parent just wises up and says, you know what? Why? It's because I said so. Why? You don't have to know that. Okay, eat your food, you know? And, and the child just goes, okay. And then we say, okay, that, that the child is obedient. That child knows what's going on. And you don't have to answer your question. But as long as the child knows that you know, and the child knows that they can trust you, then it all works. And they're willing to obey, right? And that's how faith works. We're the child, and God's the father. And he's saying, look, I've given you enough. Trust me with the rest. And so, in closing, in verse 36, for from Him, through Him, to Him, are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That Him, that pronoun Him, is God. God. All things come from God, verse 36. All things are held together and happen through God, verse 36. And to Him... All things will work together. That's God. And that is why he deserves the glory. We're not God. God is God. Things don't come from me. I don't hold things together. And I don't make everything work as a human being. But God does. God does. And that is why he deserves the glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we close this time and we move into communion, we thank you that we've been reminded of these great truths that we have been chosen, grafted into the olive tree by your sovereign decree that you have given us the grace to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ And we would have never done it this way on our own. We would have never figured this out on our own. But through your declared word, we now can have confidence, Lord, that you are in control, that your judgments, your ways, we can trust are beyond scrutiny and they are beyond our complete understanding. But we know the God that we trust in, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, and that he is right. And that that is the people that we are, Lord. And that is what you desire from us. To trust you in your decisions of who comes to life and who doesn't. I pray, Lord, for any here who may never have yielded their hearts to Jesus Christ. We are reminded of the words of your Son who said, that if anyone acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before the Father. And also, if you are ashamed of me then I will be ashamed of you. Lord, may we not be ashamed of you. Maybe we be willing to acknowledge you as Lord, believe that you've been raised from the dead. I pray everyone would come to that place, Lord. Be secure in their knowledge of an eternal relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.